Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, we welcome Barbara Tversky, the Professor of Psychology at Columbia Teachers College and Professor Emerita of Psychology at Stanford University. Specialising in cognitive psychology, Barbara has conducted extensive research into areas of memory, language, spatial thinking, event cognition, extended mind, diagrammatic reasoning, design, gesture, and creativity. Through this research, she's collaborated with many neuroscientists, philosophers, linguists, and computer scientists, as well as many other world-class experts to assist her in bringing these insights together. Barbara is a fellow of the Cognitive Science Society, the American Academy of Arts and Science, and she was the former president of the Association for Psychological Science. In 2019, she released a book titled Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought, a book that discovers how movement, gestures and diagrams can play a bigger role in cognition than language itself. And that will be a key part of our discussions today. She joins us on the line from downtown Manhattan in New York. Barbara Tversky, thanks very much for joining me on GovComs. Well, thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. So, so Barbara, perhaps first principles uh, to get us started. What is cognitive science and why is it important? Oh, it's terribly important. A cognitive science is a set of disciplines that are interested in how the mind works. So it includes brain scientists, um, behavioral scientists, computer scientists, linguists, philosophers, people who are entranced with the mind and underlying that, the brain, and come to it from, with different techniques all of which contribute to our understanding. So in terms of the the sort of key research that you have done over the years, what have you learnt about the brain and what can communicators know and understand better about the brain that would make their work more effective? So the brain is incredibly complex and looking for simple answers Um, might be futile. The answers are going to be interesting, but they're not going to be simple. For me, what has been basic is is the brain discoveries about how people understand space and, and use space to understand other things. And that, to me, is fundamental. So all creatures, in fact, all living things need to move and act in space in order to survive. Even plants need to move toward the sun, away from the wind, find nutrients underground and above ground. So movement is crucial to life. 
and how the brain codes places and spaces and borders, um, the brain substrates that do that turn out to be the brain substrates that code abstract thought. So abstract thought, thought about time, thought about social relations, thought about conceptual relations, all has its foundations in the way that the brain represents space. So that, that insight or that set of discoveries has been fundamental to the way that, that cognitive scientists think about abstract relations. They're like spatial relations. So if I, if I interpret that from my position, which is as someone who works in, in government communication, what you seem to be suggesting then it, to me and, and, and the relevance that that would have to me is really around the context of communication. So understanding if you are speaking to a particular audience or you're creating um, particular types of content to engage with a particular audience, that it's fundamental that you understand the context that people are in. So where are they receiving the information? How are they receiving the information? What's going on around them? So to be effective, to get a message um, translated and accepted by the brain, that you really do need to be thinking about where that information is being processed, what, is, what the context is. Absolutely, absolutely. And one amazing fact about the human mind, the human brain, is that we can transfer information. We can evoke imagery and pictures from language. Language can make us cry. Even though we're not actually witnessing a scene, it's describing it in a way. Nevertheless, the face-to-face -face has importance. So language does capture a great deal, and we can imagine visual things, spatial things, just from language, and vice versa. We can use our spatial and visual memory and imagery in order to, to um, create beautiful prose. But being there um, is adds something. So that's part of it. So context is very important, but that interchangeability, the ability to go from modality to modality is also important about being human. But let's take a moment to look at what happens face to face. Face-to-face, -face, I'm not just using words, and you're not just using words. We're using our whole body. Gestures to speak, we're often pointing to things in the world or looking at things in the world, using terms like this and that and there and this way, which all refer to the world. So we're bringing the world that we're sharing into our conversation through the actions of our body, and through the existence of the world. So how to do that when we're not face-to-face -face is somewhat of a challenge. Um, some of it is in our language. In fact, the way we talk about thinking is the way that we talk about acting on objects. So in, in fact, you almost can't talk about actions on thought without using that language. 
So we bring forth ideas, we toss them out, we tear them apart, we bring, draw them together. Those are all words that we might use on actual objects when we're interacting with those objects, doing things with them. What's especially interesting is, is, is that we turn those actions on objects not just into words, but into gestures. So if I say toss out an idea, I'm probably going to toss one out with my hand. If I say bring ideas together, I'm going to use my hands to show that. So that those concepts um, of actions on thought get expressed in our words, in our, in our actual gestures, and in our language. So it, it, again, that multimodality supports one, supports the thinking. It's richer and more understandable with actions like gestures than simply words. And we've shown that in a series of experiments. So in a world that is awash with content and, and social media and mobile phones where perhaps and also, you know, the, the challenges of COVID-19 where face-to-face has been a challenge because of, of the pandemic, how or what would your advice be to um, people working in communications to, to, to understand this, this new context that they're working with and how can they be more effective understanding that that richness that you've described in face-to-face communication is often deprived from them at the moment and so they are limited in that ability to be able to be, you know, together um, in person with other people and even then the, the, those those groups may only ever be sort of limited, but where should people be thinking uh, in terms of being more effective in in this age dominated by the screen, dominated by the phone, you know, dominated by Zoom? So Zoom helps in the sense that we do see faces and get some feel for uh, for facial expressions, for engagement, over just voice. However, I think that those video tools could be improved immensely. We've done a bit of research on how people interact or collaborate in work. And one thing that's important there is having a shared visual space, like a whiteboard or a diagram or a tabletop where things can be moved around or drawn on or, or, and can be referred to by pointing rather than language. So that it, it's not just two minds or two voices or two faces collaborating. You also need this joint tool that puts the joint thinking out there in the real world on relieving a certain burden on our minds to keep it there, right? So, because it's out there and we can point to it, move things around, and that saves language, which can be ambiguous and, in fact, misleading. So I haven't yet, there aren't yet popular, widely used interfaces that allow that. 
and I hope they're under development because increasingly work will be remote and collaborations are important. Another thing that's important, and this I think everybody has experienced when you see a grid of faces, you don't really know where people are looking. And if you're in a big conference room, even a big conference room, you can see where people are looking. Usually where people are looking is the next speaker, but there has to be commonality. I have to know that the rest of the group is which way they're looking in order to understand that, where people's attention is. People look where they're attending. And the Zoom screens and other screens now, even when they have everybody there, don't allow us to see that. And we can be quite confused by seeing people looking in different directions and not knowing where they're looking. So that seems to me, again, something that the, the developers could overcome and could compensate for in one way or another. Still another is the flatness and the camera angles. Uh, if you start to gesture and want to show your gestures because you know they're meaningful, and they are, they often override language. If you put your hands closer, they all of a sudden look huge because of the camera angles. So something has to be done there too, to allow the camera angles. On the other hand, what Zoom does is allow you to see everybody. And that's harder to do in, in a large setting with many people. And I've found in teaching something interesting, it seems to democratize. So instead of a whole classroom looking at me when I'm teaching, I'm just another box on the screen. And many of my students, and these are small classes, 20, not 60 or 80, my students are more likely to speak up for that reason. They aren't all focusing on me. They're, fo they're seeing everybody equally, and it seems to democratize. So I keep looking for the good features, um, and right, because we're stuck with this technology, and that seems to be one of them. But I, I think um, that this sort of communication has a ways to go to, to really compensate for face-to-face. You made an interesting point there. Uh, you you said that gestures often override language. Could you explain that? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I was married for many years to a man, he's no longer alive, who had been a paratrooper and dropped in the desert in the middle of the night and had to find his way home without a map. So he was extraordinary at spatial thinking and at finding his way. But language was another problem. So when we would drive, he would, he would point left and say, turn right. And it didn't matter what language he was speaking, but the way he was pointing was the way he wanted to go. He didn't always use the words right. And we found that again in collaborations. People often, their speech is vague. They're planning a route on a map. The speech is ambiguous and vague. Even when the map is in front of their eyes, 
but their fingers are correct. Um, a good friend and colleague of mine, who is Susan Goldman, who has looked at children doing Piagetian tasks, conservation tasks, like pouring, like is the water the same if you pour it from a fat cup to a skinny cup? And she finds that children show their understanding by gesturing pouring. Even though that hasn't been spoken of, they gesture it and show their understanding even when they can't articulate it in words. Um, we've taken those sorts of things in the laboratory and tried to explain, say, how a car engine works. And we used either gestures that showed the structure, how the parts looked, or showed what the parts did. And then later tested them on their understanding. And the gestures, the words were the same in the two conditions, but the gestures different. And the gestures that showed action instilled a much deeper understanding of the action in the people that saw those gestures, even though the language was the same. They had they understood the engine better and they understood the actions of it better. So gestures can contribute way over and above language and, and or words and become important for that. I mean, other aspects of language too. We know someone's being sarcastic or ironic by their voices, but when that's in print, you don't know it. So emojis, seem to try to compensate for that. You know, you wink or, or, or have a, a, a certain smile to indicate that you're saying something in jest. So again, we lose a lot, in, either in words, um, using only words, or even on flat Zoom, where gestures are more difficult. Um, but there are ways of compensating somewhat, not completely. So gesturing as a part of a presentation, obviously there are a number of components to to a presentation and this could be, uh, you know, convening a meeting or it could be presenting at a conference. So there are different contexts in which we are able to uh, present. And as I'm speaking to you now, I'm looking at my hands as I'm gesturing. <laughs> um, right. But so, so you bring together then, you know, the spoken word, uh, potentially the, the, uh, the, the imagery, whether it's moving imagery or still imagery or animation of some sort. And then there's the gestures uh, and obviously language and, and, and your intonation and, and other things. So in terms of, of that, what is your advice to people in terms of their gesturing? Because I'm not sure people think quite deliberately and that it's almost a, an accident as to what you do with your, your hands and your body, that you're not really being as deliberate as you would be in terms of putting the presentation together. So you'd be thinking, okay, here's the imagery, here's the language, here's the imagery, here's the language. But I'm not sure people then think so much about, okay, and, and here is the gesture that I'm going to sort of make that point with. So, again, in, in search of, of wisdom and advice, how should people be thinking about those gestures as a way of a package 
that will help them to be more effective with their presentations? So the, the gestures could, should be congruent with what you're saying and, uh, you know, COVID. So, and, and, um, and, and reversing the curve. That is a gesture that we saw in the media many times of, of moving the curve down or a rising curve. And that's easy to do with your hands. So the, the gesture should match what you're trying to say. And that helps. Gestures help even in segmenting the speech. On the one hand, on the other hand, or first, second, third. So the gestures can accentuate the breaks in the thinking and be effective for that reason. So I think many people are inhibited about using them and in some cases are taught not to, that they're crude. But if they just let themselves speak naturally, they will make gestures. So we found... Um, an interesting, what we think is an interesting phenomenon in that we put people alone in a room and they're studying complicated material that they'll be tested on. It might be a description of a small town where everything is. It might be how a, how a car brake works or pulley system. It might be keeping track of, of a company that's doing many different productions in many different places, so it's scheduling them. We put people alone in the room studying that material, and they study hard. These are students. While they're studying, about 70% of them spontaneously gesture. We don't tell them to. They're alone in a room, not talking to anyone. Their gestures are making maps of the environment or models of the car break or a, a table for a schedule. So their gestures are are embodying the thinking, making models of what they're supposed to learn. And if they, when they do that, they remember better. And if we make them sit on their hands, they remember worse. So the gestures that we make even help our own thinking. And they certainly help other people's thinking when they watch them. But again, the gestures should set up a model of what you want people to get from what you're saying. So I've, I've also spoken of the, the importance of diagrams and charts and maps. Again, because there are more direct connection to thought than words. Words are arbitrary, um, have arbitrary connections to meaning. But if I'm making a model of a car break or sketching a map with my hands, or making a diagram of either of them, that's reflecting the thought directly. So that combination in public speaking of having a diagram or a map, of pointing to it when you need to, even tracing what is going on there step by step to, make, to help people understand, all of that is extremely effective. And you can't ex just throw up a slide and expect people to get something out of it unless you walk them through it. And they can't look at the slide while they're listening to you. So, because people don't multitask very well. So you really have to use that slide and walk people through it 
and they'll get a much better understanding of whatever it is that you're trying to say. Interestingly, in a paper that you wrote back in 2014, Thinking in Action, you you stated that in one of your experiments you found that communicators use more gestures than problem solvers. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, yeah, it, right. I mean, I said people alone in a room solving problems make gestures to solve them. When you explain, you're obligated to compose a narrative and to go, have a beginning, what's the problem, and, and then walk through a solution and show an ending. So it, because you're explaining to somebody else, you're, you're, and you're composing a narrative, the gestures go along with that narrative. And especially when you're explaining a problem that needs to be solved that is inherently visual-spatial, then the gestures are congruent with the problem solution and help explain it. It's like talking to yourself a bit. You can talk very telegraphically, but if you try to explain your thoughts to somebody else, you have to fill in those things. And, and the same happens with gestures. You make bigger gestures to people, to explain to people than ones to yourself because you're aware that they need to see them. If they're very far away, your gestures get even bigger. So just, and this happens naturally, just as we adjust our speech, we speak louder if someone's far away and softer if they're closer. We seem to automatically um, modulate our gestures depending on our audience. If our audience is just us, um, we can be more, more telegraphic. And so with those ge- gestures, clearly your, your hands are, are very powerful tools to gesture, but what about the rest of your body, your legs, you know, your torso? How, how important is that movement to creating meaning? So it, it again depends on, on the content and, and, as you say, the context. In many contexts, I'm hidden behind a podium. Um, I can pop out, and I often do, um, and then illustrate something with my whole body. You could certainly do it explaining car engines and so forth. And and many, I keep coming back to these educational examples because I'm at the moment in an ed school. Um, And in, in fact, many science educators, math educators do use movements of the body and, and as they explain and have children or adults who are learning use them too. They might enact the actions of, chemo- of, of molecules as they bond um, and might show you that action. So it, depending on the context, using your whole body in one way or another can actually be helpful beyond just using your hands. If you so gestures have been incorporated into languages or have been the basis, not certainly not the complete story, of total languages, sign languages, which are languages in and of themselves. They aren't just gestures, but they tend to use many parts of the body, not just 
hands, they use face and head and shoulders, position in space, uh, just about anything that might be visible to another speaker. Legs are often less visible, so they're less a part of it, but um, they can be in, 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 as gestures in some contexts. Well, in, in, it, it, it's it's interesting because I think I don't think we've ever seen as much sign language in you know the last twelve months as we have during this COVID period. It's been I, I find it compelling to to watch the sign language people. And as you say, it's whether it's an eye gesture, a gesture with the mouth, a sort of quizzical look, a hand movement. It's it, it, it's an, a, a clear art, isn't it, in being able to express and tell a story through gesture and nothing else. It, right, and it has been codified as a language in, in, uh, in just the way that any other language is. In fact, it's the more we study, and I, we I use, um, it's not me, it's other people, the more... Uh, linguists study other languages. They're finding surprising and fascinating uses. Whistles, tones, we know about. There is an Aboriginal language, apparently, where people normally speak kind of sitting on the ground around a circle, and the ground is pretty stand sandy, and part of the language is drawing in the sand. That's almost an obligatory way of expressing, but it's quite common. And again, it's the context that um, allows that. But the drawings in the sand become an integral part of the of the language. So, thank you so much for for spending some time with us today. It's been fascinating conversation. But if you were to Sort of, and, and this is probably an unreasonable question, but if you were to sort of pick the, the top three things that someone working in a government communication role whose job it is is to try to explain, you know, policy, program, services, regulation, and, and, to, and to be good at listening and understanding about what citizens are taking in and what they're understanding, what would, what would your best advice be to them from the the research that you've done over the years that would make them uh, better and more effective at their jobs? So, it, again, it would depend on the context, but I think having, creating a good information visualisation would be enormously helpful to people. There are more and more of these and you have to test them, but explaining something like uh, how to prepare your taxes or, or how to pay bills or how to go to a health clinic or how to prevent certain diseases, how to, how to bathe a child. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what you'd be explaining, but almost anything that where you're explaining or teaching in that way could probably be visualized in a, on a sheet of paper or a computer screen that people could take home and understand. And those visualizations, like maps, will have words in them and symbols in them, as well as simplified drawings, lines leading from one step to another, and maybe numbers indicating the steps. It would really depend on the information. 
and there are specialists now in information design. So I, I would think the first thing would be a good sort of multimedia um, information visualization that you could refer to, go back to, have in some place. If it's a visual, if it's a verbal explanation, using that um, as well and gesturing on it. So, but I think a starting point would be what do you want to communicate? What do people need to learn? And, and walking through that from beginning to end in as simple and direct a way as possible. And, and I believe that, and, and again, we found this in our own research, that asking people to diagram that knowledge or that information, um, create a visual explanation of it, is the best way for the student to learn, but also the best way to, to develop a good communication for other people. So I would start with that and, and go, go forth. Well, it's interesting that you do say that because I think that is exactly where the world the, the world of government communication is moving because there has been traditionally an over-reliance on the written word and as government has tried to get more and more information out to people, they've relied on more and more words and it's, you know, there are now pages and pages and pages mm -hmm. of information which are just words and that's, it's very, very hard uh, to get through a lot of that information to create any sort of meaning. So I think this move to simplification, this move to visualisation that you've so clearly articulated is certainly a, a critical part of, of the next phase of government communicating more effectively where it can break it down into a simple and make it much more accessible and much more understandable. And the words can be there but they're only part of the show, not, not the whole show. I couldn't agree more. I, as I've been saying, I think the, the use of marks in space or gestures in space is a far more direct way of communicating, think again of a map, than, than words, which are one word after another. And you're making the citizens have to construct a spatial mental model from the words so instead of making them construct it, which is often very hard because the language can be incomplete or confusing, give them a, a diagram and, have, and work from there. It will clarify the thought of the person trying to communicate and certainly help the thought of the recipient. Well, Barbara Tversky, thank you so much. That is just such wonderful advice. And I am actually hosting a workshop this afternoon. So I am going to go back now and have a look at my visuals to make sure that they are <laughs> much more simple. But I'm really going to get into my gestures today. I'm really going to try to see if I can think of some ways of moving my my body and moving uh, my face and move and be much more mindful of it because I, uh, I don't think I've ever really thought as much. I don't think I've ever really thought about gesturing until our conversation today. So there you go. That's the purpose of this podcast is to teach, and you have taught me something today. So I'm very grateful, and I know the audience um, will certainly be very grateful 
um, for your knowledge and wisdom that you've shared with us today. So, Barbara Tversky, thank you so much for joining us on GovComs. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And there you go, audience. Uh, fantastic. What a great insight there. What wonderful wisdom. And it's just the simplicity of that. And going way back to the first answer, that sense of, you know, the brain likes it simple. The brain likes it visual. The brain... And really, that's how we're going to get it across and understanding that context as to where are people going to get this information and how can we do it in such a way that creates meanings. And, you know, words are part of it, but they're not the whole show. So we've got to be much more visual. And I certainly think that this is going to be an increasing part of the work that we do uh, in coming years uh, in government communication. So more to come on that in the future as we keep talking about government communications, which obviously is increasingly important as government plays such a big role um, as we all recover from COVID-19. Government is going to have to get better at the way it explains itself um, to citizens and stakeholders. But you know all that. I'll be back at the same time in two weeks with another great guest here on GovComs. Thanks again for your attendance and your interest. And I'll be back, as I say, at the same time in a couple of weeks. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.